Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast ever. Talking about, um, what are we talking about? Um, oh, wait, <laughs> I know why I'm so confused. We're not talking about anything. We're reading a short story and then we're talking about it. This is so confusing now that I've flipped up the order. So today we'll be reading Out of Season, the second of the Hemingway short stories, and then we'll be discussing it. Uh, but before we read it, um, housekeeping. So, what was I going to say? Oh, tomorrow's story, the third story, which is called My Old Man, is really long. Um, so we will be breaking it into halves. We'll be doing it in two chunks. Because um, it's a longie. Um, so keep an eye on the subreddit to, you'll see how much of it to read, but if you were going to read ahead and read it straight up, just so you know, we'll, we'll be breaking it up over two days. Um, was there any other housekeeping? What else did I need to say? I don't know. It's weird to not have chit chat at the start of the podcast. It feels weird to just go straight into reading. I feel like I just need to chit chat for a bit. But I suppose we'll chit-chat after the after we read the story. Is that it? Oh, I know what I've got to chit-chat to you about. I was going to tell you why these two things were both true. It, although now I have read a short story, so it's not true. But prior to yesterday, these two things were true. I have never read a Hemingway story. And Hemingway is my favorite author. How can that be true? So... I heard this thing about Hemingway years ago, years ago, where it was like he was so influential with his writing style. He was such a beast of the the industry, I suppose, of that art that you could categorize every writer who would ever, if you had ever read Hemingway, you fell into one of two categories as a writer. You were either trying to be like Hemingway or you were trying not to be like Hemingway. Because um, that's how influential he was. If you'd read him, you couldn't help but be influenced one way or the other by his writing. And I just thought, that is so cool. And I just had it in my head that, like, I think he would be my favorite author. I'd never read any Hemingway, but I just, I just had such a respect for him. And so I had this inkling, like, I bet if I read Hemingway, that would be my favorite author. And then another thing Hemingway said was, like, not to compete with your contemporaries, only only compete with dead people. I think it was the way he phrased it. Meaning, compete with like the greats of all time, your heroes from past generations. Um, You can strive to compete with them and measure up to them, but don't compete with your contemporaries of the day. And that had this feeling of like, I kind of get what you mean, like, There's no point comparing yourself to, you know, the next guy who's trying to do the same thing and, you know, wondering why they struck it big so quickly and why it's taking you so long to get success, that kind of thing. Because everyone achieves success in their own way, but it's the people that stick with things that eventually become successful. Um, And I really believe that. And, And I, you know, God knows I've been on this journey for over 10 years to be a writer and I'm still thinking, you know, am I even a writer? You know, my... My latest book came out in March and I put everything into it and it's getting really good reviews. But still, like, it only sold... I've sold, I reckon, less than 100 copies of that book. And I just kind of think, 
you know, part of that's because of COVID. I can't get out there and promote it. But I don't know. Like, I'm always thinking the next thing I do, well, I'll strike it big and, and I won't have to keep working weekends in a, you know, in a cherry farm <laughs> or, you know. But um, I just never seem to quite get there. I've really gone off the rails. I can't remember what I was saying. Oh, yeah, but there's no point competing with other people who, like, just sort of rocket their way to success and, you know, by 21, they're the, the leading Hollywood actor or whatever. Not that I want to be an actor, but you know what I mean. There's people that get so much success so quickly, but just it just happens for different people at different speeds. I think the thing, though, is that you've got to be okay for, like, if you never get successful in terms of, like, when I say successful, I don't want to be rich and famous. I just want to... Like, I'd love to buy a home. It's just a modest home like my neighbor lives in. You know, my neighbor owns their home. Um, it's pretty much just like mine. It's nothing remarkable. It's a nice little house. I that That's my... Like, if I could do that from being a writer, like, to me, that's... You've made a living, you know? Quite literally, you've made a living. And that's my measure of, like, when I say, like, I want to be a successful writer that's all I'm really talking about and um and also sort of respect within the industry it's like to be um kind of res- res- respected or even renowned as a as a decent writer would be great um what am I I can't remember what I'm talking about I'm getting so sidetracked oh yeah Hemingway so Hemingway put all this into my head of like compete with the greats don't compete with the guy next to you because they're going to move at a different speed to you and they're going to do their own thing and like, don't try to do what they do. Um, and so I kind of had this idea in my head of like, in my head, Hemingway was the best writer that's ever lived. And I was just like, wow, he's he's the best. Even though I hadn't read his stuff, I just knew it. And then I thought, well, if I read it and try, like, I don't want to be in one of those two camps of either trying to be like him or trying not to be like him. So I thought, if I never read any Hemingway, no one can ever accuse me of one, of either of those things. So I, I can sort of arrive there independently of whatever, however, whatever I arrive at. Um, and also, if I just imagine, so I compete with Hemingway, I want to be a better writer than Hemingway, right? That's my goal. And I imagine how great he is. So I never actually read it and compete with it. I just imagine how great it was. It's the best writing that's ever happened, right? Um, Then if I compete with that and measure up to it, then I've only really competed with myself because everything that I idolized about the man Hemingway was all from my own imagination of who he was. It's not his actual work. So it's like, you set yourself this impossibly high standard of a, of a godlike writer who you idolize. And then you try with all your might to measure up to that. But you never actually read them. And so it was this beautiful way of saying, he, he said, only ever compete with yourself and your and dead people, I think was what it was. And so I, I get that. Like if you just compete with yourself, but then if you compete with sort of this idolized idea of someone who's a much better writer than you could ever be but then you try to imagine what that is it's like in a way you're also kind of 
getting there, getting your head around what that is. Anyway, that was my theory. So if anyone ever asked me who my favorite writer was, I always said Hemingway um, or Roldal. Roldal was another go-to answer. And I have definitely read a lot of Roldal. Um, but Hemingway was my usual answer. And then the follow-up thing, but I've actually never read any Hemingway. That would be my answer. That would be my answer if I could be bothered explaining what I meant by that. So for me, that was a really beautiful thing to have this kind of like approachable legend who kind of mentors me, but it all just comes from my own imagination. Um, now, now I've read a Hemingway. You know, yesterday was a big moment for me to read that short story. And um, it was good. It was a bit underwhelming. But then again, it's like, that. I think that was one of the first short stories he wrote, or at least it was one of the first that he'd ever had published. Um, and so it was very, very early days for Hemingway. So... I know that that's not the best he can do, but it is interesting to see it and to fit it into the puzzle of who he was and what he achieved. So, hey, let's continue. I've, I've rambled long enough. Let's read the book, the story called Out of Season, which goes like this. On the four lira he had earned by spading the hotel garden, he got quite drunk. He saw the young gentleman coming down the path and spoke to him mysteriously. The young gentleman said he had not eaten, but would be ready to go as soon as lunch was finished. Forty minutes, or an hour. At the cantina near the bridge, they trusted him for three grappers because he was so confident and mysterious about his job for the afternoon. It was a windy day, with the sun coming out from behind clouds and then going under the sprinkles of rain. A wonderful day for trout fishing. The young gentleman came out of the hotel and asked him about the rods. Should his wife come behind with the rods? Yes, said Peduzzi. Let her follow us. The young gentleman went back into the hotel and spoke to his wife. He and Peduzzi started down the road. The young gentleman had a musette over his shoulder. Peduzzi saw the wife, who looked as young as the young gentleman, and was wearing mountain boots and a blue beret. Start out to follow them down the road, carrying the fishing rods, unjointed, one in each hand. Peduzzi didn't like her to be way back there. Signorina, he called, winking at the young gentleman. Come up here and walk with us. Signora, come up here. Let us walk together. Peduzzi wanted them all three to walk down the street of Cortina together. The wife stayed behind, following rather sullenly. Signorina, Peduzzi called tenderly, come up here with us. The young gentleman looked back and shouted something. The wife stopped lagging behind and walked up. Everyone they met walking through the main street of the town, Peduzzi greeted elaborately. Buon dia Toro, tipping his hat. The bank clerk started, stared at him from the door of the fascist cafe. Groups of three and four people standing in front of the shops stared at the three. The workmen in their stone-powdered jackets working on the foundations of the new hotel looked up as they passed. Nobody spoke or gave any sign to them except the town beggar, lean and old, with a spittle-thickened beard who lifted his hat as they passed. Beduzzi stopped in front of a store with the window full of bottles and brought his empty grupper bottle from an inside pocket of his old military coat, a little, too, a little to drink, some masala for the signora, 
something, something to drink. He gestured with the bottle. It was a wonderful day. Masala, you like masala, signorina. A little masala. The wife stood sullenly. You'll have to play up to this, she said. I can't understand a word he says. He's drunk, isn't he? The young gentleman appeared not to hear Peduzzi. He was thinking, what in hell makes him say masala? That's what Max Bourbon drinks. Gold, Peduzzi said finally, taking hold of the young gentleman's sleeve. Lira, he smiled. Reluctant to press the subject, but needing to bring the young gentleman into action, the young gentleman took out his pocketbook and gave him a ten lira note. Peduzzi went up the steps to the door of the speciality of domestic and foreign wine shop. It was locked. It is closed until two, said someone passing in the street, scornfully. Peduzzi came down the steps. He felt hurt. Never mind, he said. We can get it at the Concordia. They walked down the road to the Concordia, three abreast. On the porch of the Concordia, where the rusty bobsleds were stacked, the young gentleman said, Was Woolensy. Peduzzi handed him the ten lira note, folded over and over. Nothing, he said. Anything. He was embarrassed. Masala, maybe. I don't know. Masala? The door of the cor- Concordia sat. Sorry, the door of the Concordia shut on the young gentleman and the wife. Three masalas, said the YG to the girl behind the pastry counter. Two, you mean? she asked. No, he said. One for a vecchio. Oh, she said, a vecchio, and laughed, getting down the bottle. She poured out the three muddy-looking drinks into three glasses. The wife was sitting at a table under the line of newspapers on sticks. The YG put one of the masalas in front of her. You might as well drink it, he said. Maybe it'll make you feel better. She sat and looked at the glass. The YG went outside the door with a glass for Beduzzi, but could not see him. I don't know where he is, he said, coming back into the pastry room, carrying the glass. He wanted a quart of it, said the wife. How much is a quarter litre? The YG asked the girl. Of the Bianco? One lira. No, of the Masala. Put these two in. Two, he said, giving her his own glass and the one poured by Peduzzi. She filled the quarter-litre wine measure with a funnel, a bottle to carry it, said the YG. She went to hunt for a bottle. It all amused her. I'm sorry you feel so rotten, Tiny, he said. I'm sorry I talked the way I did at lunch. We were both getting at the same thing from different angles. It doesn't make any difference, she said. None of it makes any difference. Are you too cold? he asked. I wish you'd worn another sweater. I've got on three sweaters. The girl came in with a very slim brown bottle and poured the masala into it. The YG paid five lira more. They went out the door. The girl was amused. Peduzzi was walking up and down at the other end, out of the wind and holding the rods. Come on, he said. I will carry the rods. What difference does it make if anybody sees them? No one will trouble us. No one will make any trouble for me in Cortina. I know them at the Municipio. I have been a soldier. Everybody in this town likes me. I sell frogs. What if it is forbidden to fish? Not a thing. Nothing. No trouble. Big trout, I tell you. Lots of them. They were walking down the hill toward the river. The town was in back of them. The sun had gone under and it was sprinkling rain. There, said Peduzzi, pointing to a girl in the doorway of a house they passed. 
my daughter. His doctor, the wife said. Has he got to show us his doctor? He said his daughter, said the YG. The girl went into the house as Peduzzi pointed. They walked down... Ah, I get it. My daughter. His doctor, the wife said. Has he got to show us his doctor? He said his daughter, said the YG. The girl went into the house as Peduzzi pointed. They walked down the hill across the fields and then turned to follow the riverbank. Peduzzi talked rapidly with much winking and knowingness. As they walked three abreast, the wife caught his breath across the wind. Once he nudged her in the ribs, part of the time he talked to D'Ampizzo dialect in sorry, talked in D'Ampizzo dialect and sometimes the Tyroler German dialect. He could not make out which the young gentleman and his wife understood the best, so he was being bilingual. But as the young gentleman said, Jaja Peduzzi decided to talk altogether in Tyroler. The young gentleman and his wife understood nothing. Everybody in the town saw us going through with these rods. We're probably being followed by the game police now. I wish I weren't in on this damn thing. This damned old fool is so drunk too. Of course you haven't got the guts to just go back, said the wife. Of course you have to go on. Why don't you go back? Go, bu- go on back, Tiny. I'm going to stay with you. If you go to jail, we might as well both go. They turned sharp down the bank, and Peduzzi stood, his coat blowing in the wind, gesturing at the river. At the river, It was brown and muddy. Off on the right there was a dump heap. Say it to me in Italian, said the young gentleman. Un mezzora di più di un mezzora. He says it's at least half an hour more. Go on back, tiny. You're cold in this wind anyway. It's a rotten day. Oh, excuse me. It's a rotten day and we aren't going to have any fun anyway. All right, she said, and climbed up the grassy bank. Peduzzi was down at the river and did not notice her till she was almost out of sight over the crest. Frau, he shouted, Frau, Fraulein, you're not going. She went on over the crest of the hill. She's gone, said Peduzzi. It shocked him. He took off the rubber bands that held the rod segments together and commenced to join up one of the rods. But you said it was half an hour further. Oh yes, it is good half an hour down. It is good here too. Really? Of course, it is good here and good there too. The YG sat down on the bank and jointed up a rod, put on the reel and threaded the line through the guides. He felt comfortable. He felt uncomfortable and afraid that at any minute a gamekeeper or a posse of citizens would come over the bank from the town. He could see the houses of the town and the campanile over the edge of the hill. He opened his leader box. Peduzzi leaned over and dug his flat, hard thumb and forefinger in and and tangled the moistened leaders. Have you some lead? No. You must have some lead. Peduzzi was excited. You must have piombo, piombo, a little piombo, just here, just above the hook, or your bait will float on the water. You must have it, just a little piombo. Have you got some? No. He looked through his pockets desperately, sifting through the cloth dirt in the linings of his inside military pockets. I haven't any. 
We must have Piumbu. We can't fish then, said the YG, and unjointed the rod, reeling the line back through the guides. We'll get some Piumbu and fish tomorrow. But listen, Caro, you must have Piumbu. The line will lie flat on the water. Paduzzi's day was going to pieces before his eyes. You must have Piumbu. A little is enough. Your stuff is all clean and new, but you have no lead. I would have brought some. You said you had everything. The YG looked at the stream, discoloured by melting snow. I know, he said. We'll get some Piombo and fish tomorrow. At what hour in the morning? Tell me that. At seven. The sun came out. It was warm and pleasant. The young gentleman felt relieved. He was no longer breaking the law. Sitting on the bank, he took the bottle of masala out of his pocket and passed it to Peduzzi. Peduzzi passed it back. The YG took a drink of it and passed it to Peduzzi again. Peduzzi passed it back again. Drink, he said, drink. It's your masala. After another short drink, the YG handled the bottle over. Peduzzi had been watching it closely. He took the bottle very hurriedly and tipped it up. The grey hairs in the folds of his neck oscillated as he drank. His eyes fixed on the end of the narrow brown bottle. He drank it all. The sun shone while he drank. It was wonderful. This was a great day after all. A wonderful day. Sentakaro. In the morning at seven. He had called the young gentleman Caro several times and nothing had happened. It was good masala. His eyes glistened. Days like this stretched out ahead. It would begin at seven in the morning. They started to walk up the hill towards the town. The young gentleman went on ahead. He was quite a way up the hill. Peduzzi called to him. Listen, Caro, can you let me take five lira for a favour? For today? asked the young gentleman, frowning. No, not today. Give it to me today for tomorrow. I'll provide everything for tomorrow. Pane, salami, formaggio, good stuff for all of us. You and I and the signora. Bait for fishing, minnows, not worms only. Perhaps I can get some masala. All for five lira, five lira for a favour. The young gentleman looked through his pocketbook and took out two, a two lira note and two ones. Thank you, Caro. Thank you, said Peduzzi. In the tone of one member of the Carlton Club, accepting the morning post from another. This was living. He was through the hotel garden, breaking up frozen manure with a dung fork. Life was opening out. Until seven o'clock, the caro, he said. Until seven o'clock then, caro, he said, slapping the YG on the back. Promptly, at seven. I may not be going, said the young gentleman, putting his purse back in his pocket. What? said Peduzzi. I will have minnows, signor, salami, everything. You and I and the signora, the three of us. I may not be going, said the YG. Very probably not. I will leave word with the padrone at the hotel office. All right, there we go. Another story for you. Interesting one. I don't even really know what happened. They were going to go fishing and they didn't. <laughs> Is that pretty much it? I feel like I missed something. Um, the thing I really liked about it is how it just plunges you into this place and these characters, the setting and the characters, you're just sort of thrown in at the deep end and there's no kind of tour guide to point out what's what and who's who. Um, you just have to observe and it's, you almost feel like 
you know, if, if you just kind of get plonked into any situation where you aren't familiar with the place and you aren't familiar with the people, you do just have to kind of figure it out as you go. And you have to hang out there for a little while and you start to, to you know, make connections and, and figure out who's who and what's what. And that's what Hemingway, Hemingway does really well here is um, there's kind of, there's no exposition and, and, and it's, it's almost like you're just kind of left there to figure it out for yourself. And I really love that, that style of storytelling and I try to do that quite often as well with, with some of mine. Matt, Matic Strick One said, this story is significant for Hemingway since it prompted the conception of his iceberg theory. Now, there we go. Intentionally omitting large portions of the story and only implicitly hinting at the hidden themes with the prose that's left. Yeah, the iceberg theory is really cool. It's another one that I quote a lot, especially with characters um, where it's like characters and settings, actually, both of those things. But characters, um, like you never really know someone, do you? No, no matter how close you are with someone, you never know them, truly, truly know them. There's all, you always get the sense that there's something about them that you don't know. You know, everyone's got their secrets. Their, um, and, and Hemingway creates that really good. Like That's what makes the characters feel real, is the sense that there's more to this person that I don't know. If I hung out with them late, long enough, I'd start to you know, get to know them better. But there's no part where it just describes the kind of person they are. You're just kind of plonked in a room with this person. The way he did that was with this iceberg theory where he would try to know absolutely everything about the characters um, down to their shoe size and their history and, you know, everything, 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 and then omit it all, leave it all out of the story. So he knows it, but it's not actually part of the story. And then you kind of get a sense of who they are just because of the fact that the author knew it kind of just kind of bleeds through and it's sort of like an osmosis of the character. You just absorb them naturally. Um, it's really, really well done. And yeah, you can see him sort of doing that here a bit. Um, from his memoir, A Movable Feast, says Matistic, then I started to think in lips about when I had first been able to write a story after losing everything. It was up in Cortina, the Ampizzo. When I had come back to join Hadley, there, after the spring skiing, which I had to interrupt to go on assignment to the Rhineland in the Ruhr. It was a very simple story called Out of Season, and I had omitted the real end of it, which was that the old man hanged himself. This was omitted on my new theory that you could omit anything if you knew that you omitted what you omitted. No, if you knew that you omitted, and the omitted part would strengthen the story and make people feel something more than they understood. Well, there you go. I definitely didn't get the sense that he was going to hang himself. I did get the sense that maybe he thought he was going to, like, get arrested or something. Or, like, you know, I won't be here tomorrow, kind of, because they talked about what he was doing being illegal with the fishing. Um, Swims to the Mama Fisher said, interesting, but I didn't get the sense that the old man was going to hang himself. When I found hidden... What I found hidden was that we can see there is discord between the husband and wife, but we don't know what it is, other than it feels pretty big. Yeah, that's true too. I like it. Yeah, it's like you wish you had longer to figure it out, like to hang out with them and, and suss these people out. Oh, and Ander says, Swims at the moment. Fishy. Um, 
I believe the girl in Up in Michigan is late teens, early 20s, based on my own experience as a young girl. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, I knew she was a young girl, but um, it's hard to place, isn't it? I had the sense that she was... I don't know why I got the sense. There was something early on. Um, I think it was because, like... Um, was she, like, the daughter of someone who, like, that guy came to the town or came to the situation and she was, like, looking at him? Well, I don't know why I got the sense that it was, like, she was perving on her dad's mate or something like that. I can't quite, can't quite remember. But there you go. Um, Iceberg Theory says Wikipedia text bot, which has picked up a keyword there and, and inserted the, the Wikipedia thing. Um, Iceberg Theory, uh, or Theory of Omission, is a writing technique coined by uh, Hemingway. As a young journalist, Hemingway had to focus his newspaper reports on immediate events with very little context or interpretation. When he became a writer of short stories, he retained his minimalist, minimalistic, minimalistic style, focusing on surface elements without explicitly discussing underlying themes. Hemingway believed the deeper meaning of a story should not be evident on the surface, but should shine through implicitly. Very cool. Laura Weistich said, wow, this was totally different from the first story. By the way, I noticed the story tomorrow is much longer. Are we reading the whole thing? Yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Laura. Um, it is longer and we will be breaking it up. Uh, which just, just look at the subreddit. I'm about to post it um, and you'll see where to read to. All right, I'm very tired. This work on the cherry farm that I've been doing recently has got me beat. It's only a few days. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I think it, it's going to end next week, which is good and bad. Like, it's been a quite short cherry season. Usually goes for a couple of months. And this month, this year, it's barely gone for one month. Um, uh, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's always good to have a bit of a summer job, a bit of extra money coming in. That's been handy. Um, but at the same time, God, I can't wait for it to end because I'm so tired. Very, very cool. All right. You don't need to hear me but uh, complain about how tired I am, for sure. It does not benefit you in any way. Uh, all right, that's the end of this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>